0: So, today is November 12th, 2018, and my name is Todd Botler. I'm the editor in chief of Texas Plus Water, and you've joined us today for the second installment of our podcast, Talk Plus Water. So, I'd like to introduce our guest today. His name is Matt uh, Weiser, and he's a reporter with water deeply matt uh welcome and and thank you for joining me thanks todd thanks for having me so why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and what you've been doing okay
1: well uh let's see about uh three years ago i helped launch i helped launch a website called waterdeeply.com which uh is part of a larger organization called News Deeply that created a bunch of niche websites to cover sort of specialized subjects that were that are not getting a lot of attention globally. Uh, and um, I was the first managing editor of Water Deeply um, and helped sort of decide uh, what we would cover and the initial. Structure of the organization. And initially we started out covering the drought in California, which at that point was already underway for a couple of years and continued for a couple of years after that. Um, and after about a year and a half of that, water deeply expanded to cover water issues all over the West, which we sort of defined as um, uh, west of the Great Plains. Uh, and, um, and this all happened after, uh, my career of nearly 30 years in newspapers, mostly in California, as a reporter and an editor covering, uh, sort of, um, primarily focusing on covering environmental issues, including water.
0: So now you're, you don't live in California anymore, do you? No, I live in Nevada now, uh, in Ely, Nevada,
1: which is on the eastern part of the state. So we're we're in the mountainous part of the state, all, and only about an hour from the Utah border.
0: Gotcha, gotcha. And you know, obviously, Utah and Nevada are are states that, in their own rights, have a whole series of really interesting water issues. Um, so tell me the the other folks that you started. Uh, water deeply with uh so were were there backgrounds in water as well
1: no um uh news deeply was started by a woman named uh lara satrakian who uh has uh, a background in tv journalism she uh she covered the middle east for a while i think for abc news um and she, uh, she started News Deeply as a way to cover some of the things she saw in the Middle East that were not being covered very well. So so one of the first sites that they started was Ebola Deeply, covering the Ebola crisis, um, and one that they're still covering, still operating, is Refugee Deeply, which covers the whole refugee crisis, um, not just in the Middle East but globally. So no, there. I, I was sort of brought in as the, the journalist who was the water expert to um, to get water deeply up and going and um, kind of bring bring that subject matter expertise to it.
0: So your your thirty years in journalism prior to this uh, were you reporting on uh, water issues mostly or water environmental? What was your I guess what was your uh, your beat yeah well immediately prior to Water Deeply I had worked at the
1: Sacramento Bee newspaper for 10 years uh, primarily covering water issues but also a whole gamut of other environmental stuff including uh, uh, wildlife issues and public land issues uh, all kinds of stuff like that logging and um, urbanization and things like that uh, and then before that, I had worked at several other newspapers in California, uh, one of which uh, no longer exists, but my part of my beat there was covering the Sacramento-San Joaquin Delta, which is the biggest estuary on the west coast of the Americas, not just the United States, but all of the Americas, and it's um, uh, it's where the two biggest rivers in California converge, and it provides; it, it's a diversion point for water that serves like 25 million people in California. So um, because it's so important to the whole state, that's where I kind of cut my teeth covering um, the large-scale water issues. Uh, and prior to that, I, I had mostly covered other environmental issues in California, including sure. air quality and uh, land development, logging and wildlife issues and resort development and all kinds of things like that.
0: So what, which of those major categories, I guess, water, um, land, air, what, which, which one do you enjoy the most?
1: Uh, gosh, I'd say water is right up there because it touches on all the others. Uh, and that's something I've, I've always enjoyed in covering water. um, whenever you write about a water issue, it usually involves writing about a lot of other things, which which makes it very interesting but also very challenging Uh, because we all need water, whether we're humans or animals. And so whenever someone talks about diverting water or storing water or or pumping groundwater or... uh, um, dumping waste of some kind into the water, it, 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 it has to do with everything else. It has to do with people downstream. It has to do with the animals that live in the water or drink the water um, and so on. So um, I'd have to say it's water. Even though I've, I've I really enjoyed covering wildlife issues, um, I'd say water is, is more interesting because it, it's so... The scope
0: of it is so large. You know, as soon as I asked you that question, I thought to myself, "Well, I hope he says water because, you know, <laughs> this is a water podcast." And I, I, you know, that turned out well. But it, you know, I, I don't know what I would have said if you'd said air or something. But <laughs> so, so uh, now, you know, since you've been doing this for a while, you know, what what do you think are the elements that make for a good? water story, good article on water.
1: read a water story it doesn't address those issues so so that's something I always try to address in any water story because you can write about a water issue whether it's a, a new a new water right or a new attempt to store water or a new water treatment project water recycling project whatever it might be and it's tempting to just look at that project in isolation but um we always have to remember that the water flows downhill and it always comes from somewhere else. So you have to look both upstream and downstream when you're writing about a water issue. And and as I was thinking about this interview we're doing now, I realized that we also have to look underground whenever we write about a water issue because too often we forget that surface water and groundwater are connected. So, Uh, Let's say you're writing about a plan to divert water for a city or a farm or an irrigation district. You also have to think about how that might affect groundwater because they are connected and we're starting to pay a lot more attention to this, water managers are anyway, and we need to start making that part of our journalism too.
0: You know, A couple things there. You know, one is when you use the the terms upstream and downstream, I started thinking, you know, I I do some training on uh, collaborative decision-making. And, you know, there's, you know, those terms are used there to describe, you know, upstream issues or, well, you know, there's some issue developing, but maybe an action hasn't been taken yet. And downstream is kind of, here's where you know there is conflict associated with something that's been done um yeah. but you mentioned you know the disconnect between surface and groundwater management uh out in in California you know that's of course that's a a major issue in Texas still and right. has really driven a lot of what's going on here in terms of water management water policy um over the last uh 20 or 30 years
1: Absolutely, and that's something that a lot of communities are realizing. Uh, we can't think about those two things
0: as separate; they're really connected: groundwater and surface water. Yeah, and uh, you know we uh, uh, we've had a lot of litigation around that issue uh, historically. That uh, you know, in state courts, didn't never went anywhere uh, because. We have the rule of capture for groundwater, the law of the biggest pump, um, which is, you know, really it's a tort law, and it doesn't allow you to sue your neighbor for impacting your well or your springs. Um, and so that litigation is, you know, in state court kind of petered out, and and uh, then, you know, we had uh, litigation in federal court primarily related to the Endangered Species Act, which which brought some change. Uh, if you look at, for example, the Edwards Aquifer, where there's a, a pretty close connection between uh, ground and surface water. But, uh, you know, we're still kind of struggling with that. And I guess most of the West is is still struggling with it as well. Indeed, yeah. In California,
1: they, they have a relatively new... New law called the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act, which was passed, I think, in 2014, and um, uh, it has some very long deadlines on it. But ultimately, it requires um, groundwater managers, groundwater basins, to be operated in a sustainable manner. And but that people are realizing it, 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 there are a lot of connections to surface water involved in complying with that. So. Uh, people are looking, they're now in the process of looking for ways to recharge groundwater uh, as part of their management plans. And, and so, of course, they're looking looking at surface water, uh, ways to divert it, um, ways to, uh, apply it to floodplains in order to recharge groundwater. So there's all these, uh, in California, there's all these developments taking place, uh, Involving that connection
0: between surface and groundwater. Yeah, and those, you know, when you think about that, that's that's complicated to explain to the public. I think. I mean, you it, generally, you know, people don't really have any kind of a background in water management or hydrology, and so that just, you know, brings to mind a, another question, which is, um, you know, you you, uh, um, you really have to. I, I would assume that you have to find ways to, to translate um, some you know fairly complicated aspects of, of, of water management uh, and water management, water science, water policy in your articles so that the, the general public can understand um, the key issues. Do you, do you find that to be one of the bigger challenges of writing about water? Yeah, yeah, I sure do, uh, even though I've been
1: covering this stuff for a while, it, it, it still trips me up all, all the time in terms of trying to explain complicated water stuff to uh, general readers, and and one of the areas that's difficult, I would say, is, uh, is anything to do with water law, because as I'm sure you know, it's, it, it's very complicated. And even trying to, to write about water rights uh, is, is difficult because the, the terms that are used are, don't, don't often explain clearly what's going on. And especially since uh, I started writing about water issues in other states, um, that makes it even more complicated because the terms are different Uh, in in the West. uh, Fortunately, the general principles are pretty similar across the state, but the way that the law is applied is very different. So that gets to be very complicated. And uh, so it's a steep learning curve for sure. And what really the, one of the, ways to get around it is to interview somebody who, who's a an expert on on water law, but also good at explaining it in simple terms. And, and folks like that are not not easy to find, unfortunately.
0: The uh, you know when you think about it, as you mentioned there, each state's got a different way that they they do things. Sometimes they're not um, you know fundamentally different, but um, they're different enough that, you know, you find very few people who are really mas- mastering water issues, water management, water policy across multiple states. And, uh, you know, I'm just curious what you think about this. You know, I always hear people saying, well, you know, we we what we really need is for, you know, the federal government to, um, you know, I guess intervene and and manage water uh, and uh, kind of you know take that responsibility away from the states. I've also I've always personally thought that's a really terrible idea, but um, I'm just curious. Do you, I mean do you do you get a sense that that uh, um, there's a there's some movement in that direction? You know, every once in a while I hear something that indicates to me that there's a a push, uh, to do something like that, to establish some set of common rules for, for surface and and groundwater, you know, throughout the Western United States. Um, and, uh, haven't heard, haven't heard much about that lately, but I'm just curious if you've, if you've ever encountered that sentiment. I have encountered it. I, I, I don't think
1: I've seen any, uh, real movement in that direction lately. Um and I guess I would agree with you that it's probably not a good idea. I mean partly because you know water water moves in watersheds and they're they're extremely local things watersheds are. So I can't see how it would be good to have the federal government involved in that. Um, but I guess one area where lately, where I have seen federal involvement be helpful in moving the ball a little bit is is with what's going on right now on the Colorado River. Um, you know uh, it's it's coming down to the wire there with with over allocation of that river, and all the all the states who depend on the river are scrambling to come up with these drought contingency plans. Which are an effort to avoid shortages impor- imposed by the Bureau of Reclamation uh, due to the uh, long-term drought there on the Colorado River. So the the threat of that federal uh, shortage declaration is is driving the states to to finish those drought contingency plans, and and that has been a helpful incentive, I think. Um, but whether it's going to work or not, I think remains to be seen. There's some of the states, Arizona in particular, is really struggling to to finish its drug contingency plan, and, and if, if if any one state doesn't do so, then there will be federal uh, shortages imposed. So that's a big hammer hanging over everybody's head.
0: Right. Right. And course we have our own Colorado River over here and so um, one of the things I always have to do when I'm talking about um, the Colorado River out west is to kind of remind the audience now we're we're not talking about the Highland Lakes and we're not you know talking about Central Texas Uh, and so you know people here I think generally don't really understand or, or maybe not familiar with what's going on with the Colorado and so I'd like you to if you could maybe just kind of talk a little bit about that. I mean it's a you know essentially you know a, a very significant supply of water that is shared by several western states and the effort to uh figure out how to share it under um I guess a future where there's going to be less water available for each state is 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 driving some significant um uh, changes right now in policy yeah uh i will do my best to try to summarize
1: that uh it's uh, I, it's a very long and complicated issue and and i wouldn't say it's my personal strong point but um the the colorado watershed which is enormous you know it stretches from mexico up to uh up into wyoming um it uh, it's been experiencing a drought for 19 years uh, and as a result in part um, the water level in both Lake Mead and Lake Powell which are the two biggest reservoirs on the, in that Colorado River watershed and uh, I believe the two biggest in the country or two of the biggest are severely depleted and everyone's probably seen pictures by now of the bathtub ring around Lake Mead, um, which signifies that shortage. Uh, and um, the water in the, in the Colorado serves something like 40 million people in, in those seven states, as well as Mexico. Uh, and under um, an agreement signed between those states, I think in 2007, um, it was decided that there were certain tiers of shortage that were declared, um, based on the water elevation in Lake Mead. And if, if Lake Mead falls to 1,075 feet, water surface elevation, it triggers the first shortage, which, uh, requires reclamation to impose, um, water cutbacks on the lower basin states which are uh, nevada arizona and colorado and, and arizona of those three is the one that depends the most on on that water from lake mead uh and it would mean some big changes in farming and and land use in arizona which is as we all know is a very fast-growing state so there's a lot to worry about there uh but it's not just Arizona it, it extends into the upper basin which which I wrote about recently for water deeply um, they've recently had drought conditions declared in, in places like Aspen and Deanboat Springs which are things we just haven't heard of before and that's because um, what what's being what's happening on in the Colorado watershed is, is not just long-term drought but it's climate change. Uh, it means snowpacks aren't what they used to be. More more of the precipitation in the Rockies is falling as rain rather than snow, which means you don't have that winter snowpack to uh, refill all the reservoirs and rivers in the summertime. So everyone is confronting the reality of climate change in the Colorado Basin. From Wyoming to Mexico, and it's just an enormous um, hydrological shift for all the people in this huge part of America and Mexico that have depended on that water for so long. And part of the fundamental problem is that when when the water reservoirs in the Colorado River were developed, we overestimated the amount of runoff we could expect from the river, and it turned out to be less than we thought. So there's there's what's called a structural deficit in the water supply on the Colorado River, which means that uh, we allocated to the state something like 1.7 million acre feet more than more water than actually exists, and that I may not have that number exactly right, but the point is that the states came to rely on more water and actually. Take more water from the river than than nature was capable of putting in it, and that's why everyone's dealing with shortage now.
0: The uh, you know it's just kind of a, a little aside to all that. The you know I think people in Texas don't really think much about how the reduction in snowpack could ever affect Texas, but. It's such a long way from the Gulf of Mexico, where the Rio Grande discharges to the mountains of of uh colorado and and New Mexico, but you know the the amount of snowpack received in the upper watershed of the Rio Grande you know has an impact on 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 people who use water all the way down to the gulf coast um uh, and you know, I, I think a year like this, where you look at Elephant Butte Reservoir—I don't know what it is today—but you know, recently it was at three percent full. Uh, yeah, it's just uh, you know, it's kind of a a hard thing, hard thing to 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 wrap your head around, particularly since you know the Elephant Butte's not even in Texas, and so I think. Here, because so many of the watersheds are either completely or almost completely within the state, uh, you know, it's there's just not a whole lot of attention given to what might be happening in other parts of the of the West uh, concerning water because you, we're just generally not used to thinking about how that's eventually going to impact our our water supply.
1: Texas partly or significantly dependent
0: on the Ogallala aquifer? It is. It is. But, you know, yeah. w- but water doesn't generally move within the portion of the Ogallala that we have. So, so you know, it's kind of, you know, what you have is what you're going to get. Um, right. and, uh, but, you know, there again, you know, the, the Ogallala goes, I think goes all the way up into Wyoming. Uh, it's huge. And, you know, I think here we don't really think about that being a resource which is uh, shared among all these other states simply because, uh, you know, our pumping, except for, you know, what might be happening right near the the line uh, near New Mexico, probably doesn't have a whole lot of impact on, on what's going on um, in other states. Oh, i guess although i guess people may be um, you know ex- exporting i'm trying to remember there's an issue about water going across the lines state lines there near new mexico um, i think maybe the water is uh, coming from the ogallala and going into new mexico for some use there
1: deeply a few months ago and it has to do with um, uh, oil development down there where uh, because of a, partly because of a difference in laws across the state line uh, oil companies on the New Mexico side are importing water from the Texas side to do their fracking um, and that water is coming from Texas aquifers so uh, uh I think it's partly because New Mexico is is determined to uh, preserve its groundwater for future use, and for other users, it's driven the the energy companies to take water from Texas. So uh, that that is an example, perhaps, where one state that's more dependent on the Colorado River is taking water from another less dependent.
0: So, uh, getting back to part of what we were talking about a little bit earlier, uh, your involvement with water deeply, uh, you know I've been observing water deeply uh, for the last several months, and I've you know, really been impressed with some of the excellent reporting that's been produced on water issues, but I, you know I understand that you know water deeply is having um, some trouble in terms of maintaining uh uh i guess you know the you know the financing it needs to keep moving forward and so i'm you know curious uh about you know that kind of a model for 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 journalism where you know you are uh you know out there you know trying to to get um uh, you know, donations from the public, and I guess grants to, 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 uh, you know, continuously operate. Uh, how do you how do you see that as a model for journalism? And I guess, has your experience been that it, it's one that works, or maybe one that's that's uh, not going to be successful in the
1: long run? Yeah, well, some of this is uh is outside of my wheelhouse a little bit because I was I was not privy to a lot of the financial matters. I was the managing editor of Waterdeep Deeply uh most recently and uh, but what I can say is that yes, we we stopped publishing on October 31st. Uh we're we're calling it a pause in publishing in hopes that we can resume after finding uh some new financial partners, but, um, but we uh, water Deeply was sort of an interesting model in that we didn't take advertising. Um, we didn't uh, we didn't take donations from readers until very recently. We relied on instead on uh, partnership with uh, individuals or organizations that just wanted to support water journalism, um, and um, that that funding source dried up for us, and so we had to uh, uh, declare this pause in publishing. We did, uh, several months before this, we did start a, uh, a membership campaign in which we asked readers to donate money in return for uh, special member benefits access to certain special events and so forth and we got a, actually a fantastic response to that um, I was kind of blown away actually to see how much people appreciated the work we were doing uh, but ultimately it wasn't enough money to keep to keep things going it did sustain us for a couple more months but it wasn't enough to uh, cover a whole year's worth of operating expenses unfortunately Um But as for the model itself, uh, well, I do think people really appreciated us as a source of journalism and kind of as a, we also created sort of a a community of ideas around water. In addition to writing a lot of news stories about water, we published a lot of opinion pieces um, by experts in the field. and decision makers around water issues, and uh, I think when when we ran it into some trouble, it, it became became clear how important that was. I, I think I may have taken that for granted for at some some points along the way, but people really appreciated the opportunity to have a forum to discuss water issues um, and to uh, talk about new ideas, and I think we provided a really important important role that way uh but um as for the finances i'm not sure what the what the magic bullet is on on how to sustain a site like ours um sometimes i think if we had started the the membership contribution much earlier that would have helped um contributor or one or more who who will help us with in publishing uh, for for the long term um, so fingers crossed we may be able to fire up the again in the new year
0: so you just thinking about here in Texas the Texas Tribune it sounds like I mean there's some similarities they I think they had uh, uh, you know, at least somebody or some folks maybe who were supporting them financially, some organizations, I'm not totally sure about that, but they also had, you know, they do sell advertising and and have membership, um, a membership program. And I know that, um, you know, they're very careful to in their articles to, uh, you know, to say, hey, this organization we're, were reporting on they have contributed to the texas tribune in the past or they're contributing now yeah. or something like that is that is that one of the issues that the that, that water Deeply was trying to figure out you know how do you have you know take money from from folks who you know are, you're doing advertising for but also report on on them at the same time and, and find a way to to balance that
1: To a couple of times. Um, There were uh, a few instances in which we were approached by uh, water bottling companies, for example, uh, wanting to partner with us. And uh, it was tempting, for sure, uh, financially, but we ultimately decided that that was not the kind of partnership that we wanted to, um, to opt for because, uh, you know, we're all aware that there's a certain amount of controversy around bottled water these days, and, and rightly so, I think. So we, we didn't want to, uh, to tie ourselves one way or the other to that issue. So we, we opted not to take money from those groups. Um, but as for your point about organizations like Texas Tribune, I think it, it's probably it's probably easier for a general news site to sustain themselves on reader contributions because you can rope in a lot more different kinds of readers, uh, whereas Water Deeply, we were Water News 24-7, and and nothing else we didn't write about it unless it touched on water so you know we couldn't we couldn't recruit readers who were interested in politics or um, other environmental issues for instance Um, we were only relying on people who care about water to join our community Um, and I think that that may have been uh, an issue for us so by nature of our specialized journalism, it kind of limited who we could um, recruit as a
0: contributor. Right, right. But I guess you know, going back to the question of, you know, uh, how you know that you're you're really making impact. It sounds like, I mean, one way to 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 know that is you had a sounds like you had a really good response when you you went out to the public or when Water Deeply went out to the public and said hey we you know we'd like you to to support us um and, and you know kind of piggybacking on that you know were there other ways that you could tell that your articles were resonating with the public uh you know throughout the time that uh, Water Deeply was publishing yeah uh-
1: the ways was that we, we always allowed other media to use our stories, to republish our stories at no charge. Yeah. Uh, so our stories were picked up by many other news organizations who for, for instance who who did not have water reporters on their staff. Um, or who uh, were unable to cover a particular water issue in the kind of depth that we did. So um, we we saw a lot of um a lot of that going on which was very fulfilling and and it showed us that um uh, the work we were doing really mattered um another another example was you know like everybody else we shared our our work on social media and and we we got a lot of shares and, uh by other people um a lot of retweets and so forth, uh, and uh, we tried we, we tried hard to foster that that social media community, um, both to share our work and and just to uh, explore what our reach was, and it was always very positive. Um, another little personal note was that uh, in in 2017, uh, I. I received a journalism award based on the work that I did for water deeply. It was uh, an annual award by the Bay Institute in California called the Harold Gilliam award in environmental reporting. And, uh, that was really cool. And it was something I frankly never expected to see after leaving daily newspaper journalism and, and going into this crazy new world, of online journalism. So, um, that was, that was really cool. And, it was nice to see that uh um, an established journalism award like that would would recognize a a new outfit like water deeply so those are some examples
0: so uh you know you mentioned how you you were having a lot of different news organizations pick up your your water articles uh, yeah I'd like to just kind of explore that a little bit the uh sure. It seems to me that maybe in the past there there were more reporters who were kind of dedicated to water issues than today. I'm not sure about that. I've gotten the impression that that might have been the case. So I'd I'd be interested in hearing your take on that. And also, uh, what I've noticed here is that when we've got a drought going on, you know, there's a definite focus um, on... You know, on that by the media, and there may be a lot of water articles written at that time, and then when the drought's over, it seems like a lot of times those reporters are reassigned to something else.
1: Right, yeah, I, I can totally um, vouch for that. When, like when I started at Sacramento Bee, I think it was uh, around 2005, Capital of California, which in many ways is a nation unto itself, um, there was a really robust uh, journalism community in Sacramento covering everything, um, particularly politics, but also water and environmental issues. And so, the 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 scene in journalism there was very competitive, uh, and there were, I would say, in two thousand five that time frame i would say there were probably eight to ten other reporters besides myself
0: uh in sacramento covering water issues. eight to ten yeah wow uh
1: and like myself they all covered other environmental issues too but they were they were very knowledgeable about water um Exciting for me as a journalist to cover water because I had to be on my toes all the time, and I was learning from all these other journalists and vice versa. Um, and it was serving the public very well because they were getting a lot of interesting water coverage from all these different directions. We had we had reporters in Sacramento, from from San Diego, all the way up to uh, Santa Rosa and Redding in the north part of the state, who were covering water, and environmental issues. Um, But within just a few years, um, we had big changes taking place in the news business. We had the recession hit in 2007-2008 timeframe, and everybody started laying off journaling. Um, and, um, And so... A lot of newsrooms got emptied out. People pulled their capital reporters out of Sacramento. They closed their capital bureaus entirely in some cases, and uh, and within just a few years, there was there was only three or four of us left in um, in the Sacramento region who who were experts on water journalism. And it just got worse from there to the point where now. Um, the, bee, the Sacramento Bee still has a reporter on the staff who replaced me, who, who's an expert on water. And, and to their credit, the bee has always um, kind of led the way on water reporting in California. And it's always it's always had a bee dedicated to water. Uh, but I would have to say that uh, in Sacramento today, there probably isn't another reporter who's an expert on water. Uh, things have improved slightly at some of the other papers in California, to to where they have a reporter who's knowledgeable about water. Um, but the ranks have thinned significantly, and uh, and that's that's been a real bad thing. Um, but you're right. I mean, California had a had a five year drought. Go, and they went on to other things. Um, so you know, there's a void again, and it's not good for readers, and it's not good for public policy either, because you don't have uh, you don't have the public being as informed about water, and you don't have as many new ideas being thrown at decision makers.
0: My, you know, my my sense about that is that. Maybe a lot of that is due to, I guess, the way newspapers are, are kind of uh, consolidating and and they're cutting back on a lot of the, the. It seems like the specialty news beats that they do. And do you think that's a a big factor in all that? Uh, that has been a factor, but but it,
1: that particular factor didn't arise until after. The uh, media business started having all kinds of problems, and and the big reason for that was the rise of the internet, of course, um, which sucked a lot of advertising revenue out of newspapers, um, which is which is what caused newspapers to uh, to pull back and lay people off and cut their expenses and close their capital bureaus and on and on and on. Right. Uh, so. You know, news, newspapers, frankly, were, were slow to embrace the Internet, and that, that hurt them. Uh, and there's there's a certain irony in the fact that I went on to work for an Internet news site that tried to fill some of its void. Um, and, you know, for us, at least at the moment, it, it hasn't worked out. Um, we're all still trying to figure this out. How, how do we continue to provide good journalism in, in this era where all the eyeballs have, have moved
0: online, uh, it's it's still a tough nut to crack. Yeah. Well, that's probably a good a good place for us to to wrap up here. Uh, I just say that uh, you know, however it comes about, I hope you're able to continue writing about water because I've I've really enjoyed reading your articles over the last several months. And uh, to me, it seems like there's a real need for, uh, you know, reporting on water. And um, I'm hoping that uh, there'll be an increasing interest in it in the West. I mean, to me, it seems like there's kind of a, we're in a period where there's a lot more interest in water issues and, and, and focus on them. And so I hope that that continues and and uh, if it does, I'm sure you'll be part of it
1: yeah, yeah i I definitely do intend to keep writing about water um, and I do think that the there's the strong reader interest there because um, these issues are not going to go away they're they're really only going to get worse, so we need to we need to keep strong news coverage around water issues
0: great. Matt, thank you so much for, for joining me today. Um, as you could tell by the sounds of uh, the puppy in the other room, we have a new puppy, and some of the other noises, you know, I'm still kind of an novice at doing this, but it's it was really fun talking with you, and, um, you know, I look forward to uh, seeing what you, you do here in the future.
1: Thanks, Todd. It's been great talking to you, too.
0: All right. So that was Matt Weiser uh, with Water Deeply. And we were talking about water in the second Texas or Talk Plus Water podcast, which is, of course, part of Texas Plus Water. Thank you for joining us. And we will hopefully have you hear us uh, in our third installment. Take care.